0: G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna, and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host, Dr. Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel. There are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Dr. Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book.
1: All right. Well, I'm so excited to to introduce our guest for today. It is Sandra Maria Van Opstel. She's a second generation Latina. She's a pastor at Grace and Peace Community on the west side of Chicago. She's the co-founder and executive director of Chasing Justice, and she's the author of a book entitled The Next Worship glorifying God in a diverse world. And so we're just so excited for you to be here and a part of the Inverse community. Welcome, Sandra.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm so grateful. Um, You know, we still haven't connected in physical space, but I'm glad again to be in conversation with you um, virtually. And so I guess just to start off, um, can you just share a little bit about um, Chasing Justice? What is that um, and what are the goals of this organization?
2: Yes, well, um, Chasing Justice is a community of people. um, It's a community that's led by people of color um, to try to help, um, in particular, this next generation of leaders understand the integration of faith and justice. Really, the reality is when we look out into the world, we can become easily overwhelmed by the darkness and the situations that are in our lives, especially, we didn't know pandemic was coming, but hey, um, and which accelerated and elevated all the injustices that were already there. And really trying to help people see God's goodness for the world um, and in the world, and then to find their place in living justly. And so it's kind of a guide. You know, Um, we do most of what we do is currently on social media, and you know, that fits because we're all, you know, social distancing anyway. But the idea was kind of to give people a vision of what chasing justice could look like. So, less than like here's curriculum and books that you can read. It's more like, here's what it looks like in the life of a 30-year-old who spent a decade trying to p- pave their path in education, or here's what it looks like in the life of someone who's um, you know, in the medical field and is trying to figure out what it looks like to be a doctor and also advocate for equitable health care and access to health care for of the community that he or she lives in. And so it really is meant to be more of a, of a storytelling and kind of pictures of what Chasing Justice looks like. Um, and I think we got there because I've spent most of my ministry career working with the emerging leaders. So I was a campus minister. I am a pastor of a church that's incredibly young and has lots of uh, not only young adults, but um, you know, youth and children in it. And so I think, um, My heart was really like, it's not rocket science, actually. You can live a life of justice. Um, You just need someone to help you figure out how to sort through all the mess and all the information that you're getting.
1: Yeah, awesome, awesome. And one other thing. So I think it was like a couple of weeks ago, you shared, I don't even remember what medium you shared it on through social media. You mentioned randomly um, a new Pandora station, praise and protest, um, and I started listening to it and I was like, Oh, this is awesome. It's like all my favorite music all in one place together. So, um, <laughs> do you want to say a little bit about, um, about what that is and the origins behind that? Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. I was contacted by a friend over at common hymnal who said, Hey, I know that you're doing this work at the intersection of worship and justice. Would you like to be a part of this kind of leadership committee that would, uh, craft a letter. Um, and that would create uh, have conversations with folks that are in the music industry and then create playlists that potentially these different platforms would would adopt as a way of centering voices of color and centering really the journey of people of color in at the intersection of faith and justice. So I was like, sure. I mean, I, I you know, me, Drew, I'm here for the friends. So like hey. if a friend asked me to do something, I'm there. So right, the more right. the merrier. So Um, it really was, um, an opportunity for us to say, Hey, there's, um, a lot of centering of, uh, European, Western American, Australian voices, white Australian voices in this, um, in this thing we call theological formation through worship. And really we should be listening to the voices of the majority, uh, which are Brown. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I love, I mean, you, as you mentioned, common hymnal, you've got like soul, you got hip hop, you got spiritual. I mean, just this really beautiful mix of stuff um, that I usually can't find all in one, all at the same time. And now it's just rotating <laughs> them all together. And so I really appreciate that. So that's been in the mix of some of uh, my own music listening um, recently. Uh, so thank you for you and the others that did that work. Um, so I know that you've been doing a lot of work for a long time around reimagining the relationship between worship and justice. Um, so I'm curious about, like, what's your hope for the church, and and and, and maybe also along with what's your hope for the church as it relates to this relationship between worship and justice. How did you come to this place? How did you get to these to this conclusion of of grappling with these things?
2: Oh my goodness. That's a long story. So let me make it as short as I can. Um, well, you know, I was going to be famous. Um, I think I told you that last time, but um, I was planning on being famous and, uh, and I was going to be in the music industry. And so I think part of that kind of our artist in me, that musician in me that looks at how uh, poetry and, 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 and I'm Latina. So it's like poetry and art and dance and all those things that move your emotions, like a smell, you know, I, I smelled a a spice the other day and I was like oh my gosh I just went to another place with that smell so I think there are so there's so much about who we are as human beings that um, created in God's image that really we don't tap into when we're in church in congregational settings and so I think I have always been one that has lived kind of outside of the present (laughs) more in the future probably even on other planets in my mind Um, but like really the music was the entry place for that. And, um, I was, you know, studying commercial music. I was going to be, you know, studying all the things, scat singing, commercial music, copywriting. I was going to be famous, head to Nashville with all my friends. Uh, they're all there currently in the CCM worship industrial complex. So there they are. I'm not there. I'm here on the West side of Chicago, doing something totally different, never expected to be a pastor, nor did anybody that knew me expect me to be in ministry because I, um, as your book says, I think it was um, uh, the, the, the dove and the serpent power, I am a trickster. So I feel like that, that, that image really, um, I'm a disruptor and I'm a trickster. So um, what's, I think that's kind of how it started was music as the, as the kind of foundational place. And then I kind of stepped away from it and, and actually God brought those things and integrated them back together. Uh, when I saw the incredible potential that there is to form people in a space where the arts are and where the preaching of the word is and where we come together and express things with not only our mouths, but with our whole selves. So um, yeah, so that that was the start of it. Somewhere along the line, I think I must've had a kind of Jeremiah one encounter um, where the Lord was just like, you know, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down. And I was like, yeah, Um, this thing's gotta come down uh, to destroy and overthrow. mm Um, and then the last part, obviously, being to, to build something and to plant something in its place. So I think I have been uh, and always have been a, a person who imagines something. And then I'm committed to getting the stuff out of the way to make room for that thing that could be imagined, uh, which is not always comfortable uh, for me or the people that I'm working with. But, um, you know, it's the call. So that's that's me.
1: <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So one of the practices I suggest in the book, um, in this chapter, right, on on the worshiping justice and the worshiping community, I I talk about um, dialogical space, which is something like, I'm just passionate about this. This is something um, I like, I deeply, deeply believe in that um, our faith communities need to practice this. But but I know also that um, thinking about, you know, creating spaces where we Um, can speak share and discern together as a community is probably probably feels a bit radical for many faith communities also so I was kind of curious about your thoughts like um, what were you thinking um, what do you think about my inviting the church to lean into hearing all the different voices Um, yeah just kind of curious about your own response to that
2: yeah okay well I have so many thoughts about your chapter I loved it by the way I was um reading usually late at night uh, because I have two little ones I take care of during the day. So, um, and I was, I know I was laughing and yelling out loud in the middle of the night while my neighbors were trying to sleep, but that's fine. Um, that's section. Yeah. I think, you know, um, I mean, I don't know. I experience that all the time at church. So I, I people talk all the time at you when you preach, when you do, when right. you're preaching and leading worship and people are responding to you, or you're wondering what, what's happening, you know? Right. Um, so I think it, I think it, you know, part of it's really, it, it it's so cultural, which is obviously my um, kind of my area of interest and in research. But it's like in some cultures, they really tell you that to honor and to respect who's presenting, um, because they are more hierarchical or because they are more, um, yeah, they are more hierarchical, that it would be appropriate to not say something out loud, right? In other ones, um, you know, they're much more communal and uh, especially in oral cultures. And so you'd want to be speaking back and forth. So I remember one time, well, let me just say this I was ministering in a, a campus minister at a, a, a fellowship that was primarily Asian American. So they take this Latina Pentecostal and they put her on a campus that's like a research institution with a bunch of really, really cognitive. Uh, you know, like cognitively driven people, and they have her go and form disciples. So, you know, I was so offended by the silence when I spoke, uh, because I wanted them to engage me, you know. Um, and and I would remember when I, we would go to like, uh, events, gatherings and events, where I was one of the only black and brown people around is mostly white and Asian, um, I would, the preacher would say something. And I would say, Oh, that's good. Oh, amen. Oh, say that again. Oh, mm, mm. So I had a, one time I was at an event, and the, the row of girls that I was discipling that were sitting in back of me, um, every time I would say something, they would say together, I'm like, mm, that's good. They would all go, all five of them would be like, mm, that's good. Like, uh, And they would kind of make fun of me, you know? And, um, and you know, fast forward four years later, um, we were at an event, and somebody said something. It, wasn't even, it was an announcement. It wasn't even a sermon. It was like an announcement, but it was really good truth that was said. And one of the girls was like, oh, that's good. And she caught herself because in this in this four years of being discipled in that space, it became kind of a part of her her way of being in, in the community. So I think that um that there's definitely space for that. I, I wonder. Um, how to incorporate that in different communities, especially in larger churches, like, where do you do that? Does that happen in small groups? Does that happen in Sunday school settings? Does that happen at dinners? You know, when we're having dinner and we're breaking bread together. Where, where are those spaces for that? Um, I can't imagine it. Is it always have to be formal and scripted? Um, is it sometimes not? I mean, every tradition has such a different way of doing things, um, but my context is just that, you know, the children talk back to you during your sermon and, and you're happy about it because they're paying attention, you know, right, right. Um, you would never shush them. Like a parent would never shush their child in that setting. They would encourage them to interact and engage. So, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. You made me remember. Um, so when I, uh, I was probably like 22 and I, um, and I don't even, I still don't think I know how I got invited, but I was invited to speak. It's it was that old order brethren in Christ young adult conference and I know the whole thing doesn't even sound to make sense but there was this old order uh, so I'm like driving out like into like country country and so I'm speaking to this like maybe about like fifty young adults for this talk on like racism in the church and and they just like stare at me, like straight faced, as like the only black guy in the room, not even sure why I'm there. Um, and so afterwards I'm thinking like, this was probably like, this did not hit at all. And then of course afterwards, they're like, oh, thank you for your talk. So um, that just remem- reminded me of, you know, just the cultural differences. But I do agree with you that um, there are so many different ways that churches can practice it. And hopefully, I mean, I think by me kind of highlighting Anabaptist practices around, you know, conversations after the sermon versus the dialogical moments during the sermon. Like there's just so many different ways to be imaginative, but I do think that, um, the priesthood of the believers, right, is really important. And the more space that we can create for people to share and be vulnerable and for the spirit to speak and to actually believe that the spirit can speak through each and every person in meaningful ways that might redirect us in unexpected ways as a communities we discern together, I think is really powerful and important. Um, and I know that's something even for Jared and I, a lot of the stuff that we do, how we structure it, um, just creates space for as many voices as possible. And so, yeah, that's just something dear to me um, when I think about um, the practices of the church, the disciplines of the church. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear, I mean, you mentioned already that you love, I'm curious just in terms of your own responses to the chapter and maybe things that kind of jumped out at you or questions that you had in response to the text.
2: Yes. So many things. So let me start with this one. And I quote, um, if our worship declares the magnificence and faithfulness of the most high God, then it must be bound to God's own revealed character and activity. Therefore, there ought to be a direct relationship between worshiping God and being formed as people of justice. I was like, this chapter is going to be good because yes. Um, I mean, I don't know from Genesis to Revelation, there's always a call to be a, to be blessed, to be a blessing, to be one that, that one that points to, that reveals the character of God, that points to the coming kingdom. So what we do in worship uh, what we practice in worship as families as small communities and congregational settings should always activate in us that desire to be, um, to be the people of God, not just to recite things about the people of God. And so I think, um, there's so much that you say about that in the book, um, about how worship is formation and transformation. I just, I mean, I write a lot about that, um, in the next worship, but also in things that are coming. And I think that, that idea that people um, don't really understand that what you're doing when you, when you come together, you practice something together, or you omit a practice together, you're actually forming the kinds of disciples you want to have. So for example, I have a bedtime routine with my kids. Okay. So if I don't brush their teeth every night, you know, um, for seven years, 12 years, 18, years. And then at 18, I'm like, you're a grown adult now. So you have to take care of your teeth, they're going to be like, well, you never showed me how to brush my teeth. And I don't know why is that important, even if I had been brushing my teeth all along. So I think it's a very simple, I'm a mom. So here we go. It's a very simple way of saying we, we're forming something in them by what we do and what we omit. And so um, in, in this book in, in, in two, on page 216, you say, Said, you're, you're you got a lot of great stuff there, and then he said, "Said plainly, faithful worship of God ought to enliven us to God's delivering character and presence, and to our participation in divine justice and creation." I was like, "Holy yes, that's what we should be doing, please, church. Um, it should enliven us. It should wake us up. It should prepare us. It should transform us." Um, and um, that is the work of formation that's supposed to be happening. So I caught a little bit of your conversation um, you all were having about yeah. like the, the the difference or kind of the nature of salvation and justice, and I I, I would argue that in the New Testament, um, according to many scholars uh, such as Justo Gonzalez and others, um, salvation in the book of Luke actually encompasses the entire. Um, idea of liberation, deliverance, right. healing, salvation. Yep. So when the book of Luke uses the word salvation, That's it's right. not talking about a personal escapism to heaven right. um, or, you know, your personal um, kind of uh, self-help, uh, you know, kind of idea of, of, of personal relationship with Jesus. It is, a, it is a personal relationship. It is an individual choice you make to follow. But it is a part of a grand um, narrative that's moving towards the rebuilding of a just world where everyone flourishes, you know, where there will be no more tears and pain uh, and children separated from parents and people starving in our countries, you know? Uh, There's just not going to be any more of that because the king has come. And we get to announce that by the way that we live in our everyday lives. So I think those those pieces those pieces in your book that um, that point to the theological reality of what we're doing here in worship I wish that more people understood that uh, yesterday I had a conversation with a a, a young leader in our church um, who lives in our building and I said to her, we're having a conversation about the lack of women in, in, in pulpits across our country, you know? And I said, actually I can make the argument to you that we, we need more women leading worship as well, because the reality is that what we practice in worship and we don't practice in worship is probably forming us more than the sermons that everybody forgets that we preach in those 20 to 50 minutes. You know, Um, nobody remembers what we said, but they're going to keep singing that chorus over and over again. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to take advantage of the reality that uh, we have an opportunity to form people to become those who embody uh, who embody compassion and goodness and justice in the world uh, and there's a reason why uh, people are leaving the church, which you talk about in two twelve. so if, if you got another question, we'll, we'll go to your question, but I want to talk about your comment two twelve at some point.
1: yeah, yeah, no let's you can jump there. let's jump there.
2: yeah, so. I'm telling you, I really liked your chapter. I actually read your chapter and I thought, I'm working on a new book. And I was like, I don't need to write this new book. He's got it all in these 20 pages. Um, so on page uh, 212, you talk about um, how a lot of people, we, we find these do it alone, kind of do it alone, individual agents of justice rather than an organized way of participating in the life of the church. Um, and you talk about how their faith might ignite them to do justice, but but they're not doing so in concert with their faith community. And I just, that's, that's just, the data shows that that's true. Um, every generation as, as the Holy spirit gives the charism of compassion and justice to every generation, they're not finding guides in the church.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, they're not finding people to hold for them. How can I be a, a, a urban school teacher and not just like, you know, help some brown kids, but how can I actually advocate for equitable education in our country yeah. and in yeah. our state? How do I do that? They're not finding that in the church. Um, or even they're not finding that encouraged in the church. You know, it's right. kind of like, you know, don't be a troublemaker. Just like have faith and God will help us, you know? Um, And so that's why you see all these parachurch organizations um, running programs where people can learn that stuff. That's why there's so much interfaith um, nonprofit work, which I think is fantastic. Um, That's why there's organizations that are growing, that convene resources and gatherings for this kind of work. I mean, that's why Chasing Justice, because we find all these people that are like, I love Jesus and I want to live justly and my church is like not a place that I can do that. It doesn't right. disciple me. It doesn't form me. It doesn't shape me. Um, and I mean, we're trying to work with the, I mean, I'm a pastor, I love a church um, and we're trying to create institutional and organizational change within denominations and churches. But the reality is I don't want people to walk away from Jesus just because the church isn't acting right. Right. So I ha- we have to provide other ways for people to make that connection. Um, and so I think that was like, yes, like, that is, it is probably why I'm doing the work that I'm doing with Chasing Justice, because I, I tried to do it in varsity and I tried to do it in the church, and, the re- and I tried to do it in a denomination, and the reality is, those pieces aren't moving, those tables are not changing fast enough for the coming generations, and so I'm going to say, like, I'm going to still help you at those tables make space. Like we're still going to do the diverse worship thing over here. And we're still going to do the, you know, inclusion of, uh, you know, this over here and we're still going to, but in the meantime, I got to set another table because these folks are hungry now right. and you guys are not serving this. So, um, so I think that that's to be celebrated, especially as, as folks of color are saying, you know, we, we want to, we, we have something to say. Um, and now that, you know, we're the majority of the church, we'd like to say that,
1: Yeah, Yeah, we're feeling the same tension here in Harrisburg. So one of the things that I do, I'm a co-leader for a group called Free Together and it's precisely that same meeting that need, right? There's so many folks who realize as, followers of Jesus, we ought to be pursuing justice and they can't find that space. And so we created a new table, uh, across denominations in our, in our community so that people can collectively work together. And so many people, I mean, they describe that as church for them. That's a space for them to gather and to link arms and to work in solidarity, uh, for justice and collaborate with the good work that's already happening, the organizers and activists in our city that are, you know, doing the work. And so I think, uh, one of the things I hope for is is a day when free together won't need to exist anymore. I mean, it sounds weird to say, right, but that, that would be the ideal. And so some of the work that we do do is also trying to continue to encourage and do formational work with leaders um, to engage them um, and connect them with what's happening. Um, All right. So before we go, I would love to um, hear your thoughts around, uh, you know, in the book, I, I talk about discipleship you know, I'm thinking again about the corporate life of the worshiping community and thinking about discipleship. And one of the things I argue, and obviously, I mean, I quote other folks and stuff, but like just the idea that discipleship needs to not just be, um, it needs to be contextualized based on one social location, based on how we're marked by the empire, based on the advantages or disadvantages that we have, that Jesus doesn't come to everyone the same, right? Um, That to some folks, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And to others, you know, take up your cross, deny yourselves, and follow me. Like, um, I'm curious about your thoughts around uh, this idea of contextualizing discipleship within the life of congregations itself. Like, um, how important is that? Uh, do you think for worshiping communities today?
2: Well, I think worship is contextual, so um, I, it just is. So. Uh, it is a reality. We, we, we create and speak out of the language that we're using right now is coming from a location. It's the language of empire, really. So here we are um, speaking that language. Um, the, the, the universal language that helps all of us connect has a history to it. And uh, we ought to interrogate that history. So I think worship is just c- contextual. It is. Uh, in the Nairobi statement, um, which y'all can look up on the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, they talk about how worship is... Um, it's it's transcultural. It, it it kind of goes you know um, through culture or kind of from culture to culture. It's countercultural in that it's not the same as the world. You know, um, hopefully we're not trying to be as narcissistic as the rest of the world. Although our worship does show that we are. Um, it's so it's countercultural. It's cross cultural. So it should include all the elements of the peoples included, generationally, uh, abilities, um, race. Uh, you know, uh, all of things. Um, and it is contextual, so it's breathed the, the 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 expression of community is breathed in a place, um, and so I think all those things are true. It's it's transcultural. The gospel is for all peoples in the whole world. Um, the gospel is worship can be countercultural and it should be. It should teach us to be different. Um, it's cross cultural and it's contextual. Um, so I think of like uh, recently, let's take. Um, uh, COVID pandemic, for example, um, many churches don't have things for children right now. It's, a, it's just, especially small churches, like we are tapped out. We can't do online for everybody. So they're trying their hardest, but it's it's frankly just not enough for my kids. Like they're, they're used to being, and they can worship like, you know, in the congregation in the setting with the adults, but on the television, it's just not quite the same, so I've been like, let me find some worship thing that's made for kids that could do online. And so I found one, of course, it's like, who has the money to do that, but some white large mega church in a wealthy context. And I just have to screen them so that before I show them to my kids, I can see if it's actually a theology I want them to learn because it's they have representation. There are black kids on it and Asian kids on it and South Asian kids. I mean, everyone's there, you know, a kind of um, elusive brownness, you know, we don't know what it is kind of on there. It's all represented, you know? But what they don't have, what they don't necessarily represent is the diversity of um, perspectives, theological perspectives and right. actual embodied experiences that children are having. So I, I told my husband, I was like, man, this just it stinks because this is not going to help our kids right now whose parents are being deported figure out where God is in the midst of this or Every time they turn around they're like, Mom is that a police is that a siren is that shooting like it's not going to help them understand the world around them. Um, so I think to have children's ministry or to have musical worship or to have marriage premarital counseling or to have all those things in a way that is actually contextual to the location is developing disciples that are prepared for the world they live in um, and it's not just like put the curriculum in Spanish or Korean that doesn't work because the actual, lived experience of the people writing the curriculum and the theology they hold on to is nothing like the theology that we hold to. Um, and so um, I think that's one of the things I think about a lot, especially with children and young, young like teenagers because there's so much that you're, that you're soaking in. Um, and so when we sing at night with our children, um, we sing them songs from all over the world and we're not like, now remember God is a global God you know. Um, we're just singing songs from all over the world. So when they ask, like, why are we singing that? We say, because there are Christians all over the world. Our family is all over the world. And Mm, because they know people from different backgrounds, they can also put faces and names to that. So I think contextualization is just um, biblical and necessary to develop disciples that will, will understand their space. I also think that cross-cultural worship is important because if you only understand your space, you will never understand the space that your neighbor that you're supposed to love is standing in. And so it can't just be that worship is contextual. It has to be that it's also cross-cultural so that we're understanding where is the anger coming from when I have to explain to a pastor why their young black men are, are unable to be in some spaces. Um, and even in a brown context where there are Latinos or other um, Asian folks, that's not the same for them. And so we need to understand their context and then cross over and develop spaces that will nurture a spirituality, um, con gusto, a, spiritual, a, a strong spirituality that they can uh, endure the world they live in um, and know how to live justly in the world they live in. So,
1: Yeah, so good, so good, so good. I think we're just about out of time. Um, You know, I'm going to ask you one last question. Short. um, Although loaded. This is a loaded question that was not in the book, but related indirectly. And some of it is a timely one, which is, what do you think about faith communities talking politics?
2: (laughs) I love it. Yes, let's do it. Um, I mean, politics is how we live in the world. Yeah. Um so we're all political people in the sense that we engage this, we we engage civically, you know. Uh, right. we go to many of us public schools and um I don't know if there's a follow-up question to that. Sorry. I got excited no, about politics. Nope. Go ahead. No.
1: No, no, that, okay. that was it. Yeah, That's so, the leading question.
2: <laughs> so so I think that um I think that we have a responsibility to prepare people to be a good neighbor in the world around us, to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, to prioritize and center uh, the biblical category of neighbor, which are those who are socially and economically disenfranchised intentionally through structures and systems. I mean, I think that category, um, to teach a congregation to center that over their personal protection, uh, finances, you know, kind of ideal life they want to live, that's just a hard task, um, which is also why I think you should start young. Um, so for Chasing Justice, for example, we're running a, 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 a like a vote, why vote or who am, It's a, I'm voting for, you know, campaign, where we're just asking the young people that are on our Chasing Justice team to talk to to speak or to speak with their friends about why they would vote uh, now that they're 19 and able to. Um, and so we're trying to encourage people to understand that we have a civic responsibility because the structures and systems that are put into place, the policies Um, The amount of refugees that are allowed to enter into our country, who's making decisions about what to do with those babies on the border or with our young men in prison, all of those things are happening um, because of the people that we either did or didn't vote for. And so we have a responsibility, a spiritual responsibility to vote, to fill out our census, to do all those things as our spiritual act of worship, as long as we are on this earth. Um, And so I think churches should prepare people for that. They should teach the principles and the values of um, what the scriptures call us to. And then um, they'll, like parents do, cross their fingers and hope that people make good
1: decisions. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, I just figured that that was a timely question. I imagine that um, there's so many churches who, I mean, clearly on one hand are deeply partisan, but on the other hand, Don't want to directly have conversations like a family around politics. Right. And I think that that's not healthy. And so they imagine themselves as transcending it. Well, in reality, they're just captive to, you know, the logics of, you know, the partisan platform and are unable to think about their neighbor. Right. And what it means to be followers of Jesus. So I think that these are challenging things for worshiping communities to be thinking about right now. Anyway, thank you so much for um, your time dropping in with us. Such a pleasure to have you. Always good. Always learn so much from you. And um, I definitely encourage others to read the next worship and to keep track of all that you are doing. Um, Just such excellent work. Thank you.
2: Thanks a lot.
0: If you want to be part of this growing global community, you can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone, wherever you're found, be it in remote communities in the Kimberley or a township in Cape Town or downtown Berlin or on the south side of Chicago or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you. So let's work to do that together. See you.